Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Susan Robb for New Books Network, Children and Family Literature. And today I'm talking with Melissa Sweet, who is illustrated close to... This is Susan Robb for New Books Network children and family literature. And today I'm talking with Melissa Sweet, who has illustrated close to 100 books for young people, uh, ranging from board books to picture books. Uh, She's also done nonfiction titles and uh, has won a number of awards, um, including the Orbis Pictus and Caldecott Honors for her books. She most recently has done a magnificent book called Some Writer, which is the story of E.B. White. And it's one of, I have to say, Melissa, it's it's really one of the most unusually illustrated um, books that I've seen. Just so much of the way that you've handled um, presenting different parts of the illustration just really jumped out at me. And there are pieces with music scores factored into the illustration and old typewriter with the keys um, carrying through. And so you, you just get so much of a beautiful sense of sort of a celebration of the whole idea of what it has meant to be a writer. Um, But talk to me first, if you would, a little bit about how you came to want to do a, a book on E.B. White. Um, well, thank you for mentioning the illustration and design. We can, we can talk more about that because it was integral in figuring out how to craft this book. But I was not one of those people who was um, an E.B. White aficionado for in, in terms of his children's books. I came to him more from the elements of style. Um, known as Struck in White, from the White Elements of Style. And I, for, for the better part of my adult life, I had no idea E.B. White was the white in Struck in White. So this is a wonderful book of grammar with a lot of wit in, in it. And what, what I love most about it is this wonderful um, guidelines at the back called An Approach to Style. So I came to E.B. White at wanting to become a writer very late in life. And I had done a lot of biographies. And my editor and I were kicking around a few ideas. Some I had, you know, fleshed out pretty well, but nothing was gelling. And I just thought, wow, if I could do a biography on anybody, who would I do? And uh, who would it be? And and E.B. White popped into my head 
And it was one of those ashes, like, as if somebody put an uncut diamond in your lap. You just want to, like, take really good care of this idea. And I think part of it was the opportunity to, to do the research for someone like E.B. White and uncover where his stories came from and what kind of child he was and what kind of person he was. Uh, how, did write, and mostly, just, I wanted to know, did writing come easy to him? I mean, to a, everything I, wrote, I, read, I read of his just had this feeling that I liken it to snow, like the first snow on a, on a woodland path. <laughs> it's like all the snowflakes fall, and it's just quiet and perfect and memorable. And But being a writer, I'm not, I'm, that's not my experience of getting there. It, it, it's a bit, I have always found the process somewhat arduous and exciting, but I was really curious to know how it was for him. So that was, that was the impetus for the book. And especially for young readers to learn that, you know, who this, you know, classic American, beloved American writer, how he came to be, how he came to be a writer. And, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that struck me uh, in reading about this, and it's funny in talking about elements of style, because um, one of the things about elements of style is it's, it, I mean, it's so, just such an example of, of, perfect brevity i mean it just gets every single yeah. thing across there's you know it's a tiny tiny little book i remember the first time you know working in a bookstore that i i saw it and people you know were had it for people and it was just you know this thing but it's like every single you know inch of it is packed with what you just need to know and it's it's kind of iconic for for what that is and and it's funny because that's the thing about eb white's children's books they are they they just stand so separately. I mean, people have said that Charlotte's Web is, you know, considered by many the best children's book. I mean, that's a whole, you know, question you don't want to mess around with. But but in fact, it just stands out as such a magnificent, magnificent book as do his others. So so talk to me about that, about just E.B. White as a writer and and how you feel he came at a story. Like many writers, or I say most writers, his stories, you know how people say, often say um, the story found me. There's a tiny element of that to E.B. White and to the rest of us. We're, we're at a place in our life that a story comes along and we grab it. That same story a few years before, we might not have even thought about it. He was a writer from the time he was a little boy because the nature of communicating with his older siblings is he had to become a letter writer. Yet in order to communicate with them, they wrote letters back and forth. That was just the way it was at the turn of the century. And so when he, you know, he wrote poems and stories and all of it for fun. So when, when his being, he was a New Yorker writer and writing plenty when the the idea of writing a children's book came up. Um, how do I want to say it? it was so Stuart Little, in a nutshell, was a dream. But that dream had to be written down and he did and he kept adding to it. And I think that that 
it, it wasn't as if he said, I want to be a children's book writer. He was a writer, and he did this myriad of type, uh, types of writing, you know, from essays to poems to, to children's books. So it was, um, I think it was at a time in his life that he, he was being encouraged to write a, a book for children, and Stuart Little, I think, even though it was fairly fleshed out, it took some careful editing. But especially with Charlotte's Web, it was a Charlotte's Web. The idea for this story came from a couple of divergent episodes in his life, one about uh, a, a pig on his farm who had died, and then him seeing a spider in his barn spinning an egg sack. And to many of us, we see all sorts of divergent things happen in front of us all day long. But these two, uh, these two things captured him, and he later wondered if, um, if they were the beginnings of the story, these two episodes merged together. When we look back and think of Charlotte's Web, and you know, some people say maybe the most perfect children's book of all time, maybe the most perfect book of all time, mm-hmm. I, it, I think it was uh, a wonderful, perfect storm of, of a lot of writing, and then he set it aside, which I think is a writer's best friend often, when you don't quite know where a story is going or how to resolve it. Set it aside, he came back to it, he added to it, and it was painstaking editing. I I I think he he maintained that he had an ear for writing and that he wasn't a great reader, that he wasn't a literary fellow, those are his own words. But I think he listened to conversation and he understood how to craft a scene or, you know, and how to use all the devices of writing, plot, um, background, um, all, all the small devices that are, you know, we learn in fifth grade. He, he, he knew all that like the back of his hand. And I, I think one of the things that made it so unusual when it was published in the 1950s is that it dealt with death, something a children's book hadn't, but in such a poignant way that it was very, very memorable. And it was sort of an everyday thing, a spider. You know, who among us thinks about the death of a spider? But in his story, it was everything. It was, mm-hmm. it was, it was the, um, it represented every friend we ever loved. So I think he dealt with some interesting issues, and also I'm starting the story with that wonderful first sentence that always blows my mind. I love talking with young readers about this kid when I go to school, because it is pretty remarkable that he got to where his papa go with that axe mm-hmm. from, from many, many iterations, but had this wonderful first sentence that grabbed the reader and made you want to keep going, and he under, he went from you're having a very some very quiet first sentences to this one, this action-packed one from the point of view of an eight-year-old. Mm-hmm. So he he understood when to keep going and when to stop. One of the things that I I was thinking when you were talking about that, it's interesting too with Charlotte's Web how you really get a feel for 
a child's view of the world, you know, all the kinds of things you see where adults have grown up past that and see things differently and supposedly more clearly, but yet maybe not. And then also Mm -hmm. the idea of respecting everyone, sort of everyone's point of view. And you see that across, you know, across with the different animals, everybody being very different. It's, you know, sort of a cacophony of, of different points of view, but not from where you'd expect. Right. And exactly. Um, yeah, he had a great way of portraying it. And I think part of the pleasure of reading the, his death book and, and Stuart Little for sure is the, the conceit, the idea that the grownups are a little bit clueless, but everybody else knows what's going on and, and um, can, can, you know, watch it from afar. I, I, I love that wit in amongst all the, you know, all the worry and tragedy and everything that's going on behind the scenes in Charlotte's Web, or not behind the scenes. Those are the scenes. So it's, it's, it's wonderful that he had that dual way of um, making us see a story, enjoying, have, enjoying the story that way. And let me ask you about anthropomorphism, which is always a, I find fascinating of, you know, oftentimes when people head into the idea of, oh, I, saw something out my back window. I think I can write a children's book and I want to write it about that animal, you know, a squirrel in the backyard sort of situation. Um, what, what is it, do you think, that makes um, anthrop- uh, anthropomorphizing, when does it work, I guess, is my question. Well, that's I mean, it's a great question. When I first started being interested in children's literature, I remember reading frog and toad and it never occurred to me that they were a frog and toad. They were just <laughs> two people with, with a friendship and this fantastic dialogue. And so I think that I think what it works is when you feel uh, a universality about it that we don't care to, we, we don't care so much about what the person looks like. That's not part of it. It's who they are maybe. And yet with Frog and toad. I mean, there were they were there were elements of them that were frog and toad-like, and E.B. White knew his barnyard animals very intimately. I think it's only natural for humans to find those human characteristics that we can kind of poke fun at the geese saying everything three times and being a little annoying, and the sheep being worriers and uh, telling Wilbur, you know, the hardcore facts of him being a pig and ending up as bacon. I mean, those are, we all know people like that, that are in our life. So I think, I think it works because we can couch those characteristics in animals and not find fault with um, the author for giving someone those uh, characteristics that we might think are, um, maybe we shouldn't be poking fun at, if that makes sense. Yeah. Let me ask you something else. I was, as you were talking, I was thinking, so does that mean, you know, do geese behave that way? Because in our world, we look at geese and they seem to just be acting that way. And so when you're writing about geese in the way that E.B. White was, then you have to kind of give geese their due. Or, you know, is it that a sheep couldn't do those same things because of the way we view them? So you were talking about being sheep being fearful and, you know, geese being noisy. Um, do you think that it also goes to how we view certain kinds of animals and what we've, is there, is there a commonality in what we think about their behavior? I guess is what I'm wondering. Well, for better or worse, there could be that. Could be, absolutely. I mean, we, I mean, 
Because I think that's, and it's also, I think, very personal to the author. One person writing a book about a crow might think they're loud and um, um, not aggressive, but, you know, a little bit of, a little bit pushy. Another person will know a crow from a totally different way that, the, that they that they collect beautiful shiny objects or how they rear their young. So I think we I think the opportunity is certainly not to um that's funny to not stereotype these animals, but I think that I think that they were devices for E.B. White to tell his story. And I but and I think to some degree we do we do we do lump them into into certain ways of behaving. But I I'm sure um there's a pretty wide range there. Yeah. And I guess in a way, maybe, you know, doubling back on that one, answering it in a way too, Charlotte would not be, you know, a hero in many, in many quarters being a spider at all. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And yeah, yeah that's that could be. <laughs> so, yes, it's, it's really interesting. So let me, let me also um, touch on, you know, one of the things that, that, you t- touched on early on was just about how um, E.B. Wright was writing all different kinds of things from the beginning. And there's a page in the book where you talk, where there's a, a little list here of, you know, where it says sold the sonnet for $5 about a horse that won the Kentucky Derby. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then uh, wa- did other things like sandpaper to dance floor. So it was kind of like, there was this whole thing about mixing in, you know, writing all the time, but with all the other things in his life. Yeah, that well, the that the piece you're referring to is a map when e, when E.B. White and a college friend took a trip cross country, mm-hmm. and they considered themselves very much budding writers. They fixed up their the their um, Model T Ford with two typewriters and just the essential camping gear, and went off to have some fun and pay for the trip along the way with their writing. So they were game for anything at all. And, you know, so in order to eat or get food at a restaurant, you know, they would, they would pay for the sand floor, picked pears, did all sorts of things along the way. He played piano in a cafe. And I think he just, what I love about that is that he did this at a time when he had many responsibilities. He was a little bit footloose. He didn't, you know, and I, I remember being that age myself where everything we owned uh, fit in the back of a car and we just could explore without feeling like we had to get back home for any reason. So I think that was a really interesting time, but he had also, by that time, he was in his early twenties and he had done a fair amount of writing. He had gone to Cornell and uh, was the editor of a school newspaper. So I think he had his, his hand in a lot of pies, but it's interesting, too, to think how little money they needed to get by on that trip, you know, mm. $3 here and $7 there and sign the typewriter, et cetera. So it's, um, I, and that, that too, this, this is a thread in the book that describes all that we just spoke about, and it was, for me, a, a the device of using a map to tell that story rather than having it told in the text. So for certain kinds of readers, that was just a great way to um, talk about this, this um, six-month 
period in his life to compress it into this fun map of a legend that describes living. And one of the things you alluded to, which I thought was interesting, you know, also in the context of young people becoming writers, I mean, there were there were a lot of opportunities to try to get, you know, your work published. I mean, you talk about the St. Nicholas magazine uh, when you, mm-hmm. you know, for very young. And and I, I think in a way there was there was a desire uh, among young people to be able to put your work out there and there were formats to do it. it same with illustration in certain ways yeah. at that time, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, there, in, it, I think it goes back to the question, a question of what did kids do for entertainment back then? So getting St. Nicholas magazine in the mail monthly, monthly basis must have been a great day because you had a month's worth of fabulous, uh, not only science and uh, English, fun English essays, but all the stuff that the kids added to St. Nicholas. It wasn't just a kid's magazine. It was a magazine for kids, but kids added to it in a big way. And I can't imagine how much fun that would have been to receive that in the mail. So, yeah, there. I think there were, but I also think kids spent their time maybe in a different way. Not an authority on that, but there was, they made their own fun. And that was something that would have been fun was to try their hand at uh, a, a short essay or submit a drawing. We had, I'm pretty sure Highlights Magazine had that when I was growing up, at least a little bit. There's certain magazines that definitely had that option. Mm-hmm. But of what I'm noticing, I'm not I'm not well versed as to whether or not that's something that kids can do today. I'm sure they can, but what I'm noticing going into schools, even from I would say ten years ago, kids are writing so much more. I mm-hmm. I just I am blown away <laughs> by how much how much all different kinds of writing they're doing. They're journaling and uh, write making books and. Uh, essays, et cetera. I, I, it's been really impressive and, and um, wonderful, enlightening to see this, to see it this past fall when I went to a number of schools. So it's exciting. Yeah. And also short form writing is having a particular period now, right? You talk about E.B. White doing a lot of short form writing. Like poetry, et cetera, you know, poetry yeah. slams, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So, now, um, one of the periods you talk about is uh, when he worked with James Thurber and was at the New Yorker, which is mm-hmm. obviously a, a very pivotal period. Um, what do you think about that in in the context of how he grew as a writer? Well, when Her- Harold Ross, who started the New Yorker, he didn't have a he was a newspaper man. And he, he had this idea. He had many ideas. His idea for the New Yorker was this fun weekly uh, uh, magazine, and I'm not sure he even knew exactly what it would be. But being in New York, E.B. White was beginning to submit his pieces. So he, uh, Harold Ross, and Catherine Angel, the fiction editor, began to see um, E.B. White's work in various publications. And they knew that was the voice, that was the 
that I guess the voice would be the right word. That was the voice, one of the voices they wanted in the New Yorker. So he was just a young man then. It was after he made that cross-country trip, came back and was making his way in New York. And long story short, ended up with a part-time, but a full-time job at the New Yorker. He shared an office with James Thurber. And this was an interesting period for a lot of reasons. Uh, both James Thurber and Andy White, Andy was his nickname by then, really fed off each other. They both had a really wry sense of humor. So, and, it, and I'm sure their their work had to be done quickly, like any you know weekly. They they were they were working fast. They were working in all sorts of forms as well. And, and they were I guess you could say they were both sort of cutting their teeth at the New Yorker finding the, the way to write that they ended up doing a lot more of it as time went on. When Gerber becoming a humorist and cartoonist and any of white going on to do essays and short pieces. Um, but one of the, I want to say it was a dilemma, but some writer had, we had a page count as we always do in a children's book, and I wanted so badly to expand that New Yorker chapters. Um, there was so much that I wanted to say about the New Yorker, but it was it was almost as if that was a different book. That was another book. So I, I did I I but it was imperative to touch on it because that was a that was a pivotal point in his writing career. So and when I was growing up, we had the New Yorker book of cartoons. So I was especially uh, eager to not just research but include it in my book. Yeah, no, I heard when you were saying that, I thought, huh, that's sounding like another book, so I guess it, it could be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what about, uh, he had one of the, um, you know, most special opportunities to be edited by Ursula Nordstrom at Harper, and that that's something that every author, I think, uh, can dream about having that sure. type of an editor. So what about that relationship? He met Ursula Nordstrom because his uh, original editor at Harper's had passed away and he was he was ready to publish Stuart Little, I believe. And don't quote me on that, I'll go back yeah. and look, but yeah. nonetheless, Ursula became his editor. Mm-hmm. Yes, she was the editor for Maurice Sendak and dozens of other memorable people who, you know, we think of as the icons of children's literature now. And I think she had, she totally got Evie White and she, she, she loved his stuff. She, I think between Evie White and Ursula, they felt they also wanted Garth Williams. So we're looking back on this wonderful history of children's literature. I don't know how that will look today, who we'll look at as the iconic editors and and uh, illustrators and and writers that have come together in my lifetime but then she was she was just a sparkling editor to my mind she had a great wit and I think she took risks and could see at Evie white that that he had um, you know he had a great way of crafting a story for children and it wasn't necessarily typical but again, I think she was willing to take any risk. So, um, what about uh, 
the relationship to that piece of it, we were talking very much in the beginning, we, we touched on the art. So what about that in-house and the how the art um, that you chose to do for your book, uh, you were pulling from a lot of different things. You were pulling from images from the books that he had and also just things that felt very classic to the period. Yes. Early on when the idea came to me, I went home. Well, I went, it was immediate. I went home and took off, took off my shelf the letters of E.B. White. And in reading that, I thought, immediately I thought, how can I say this any better any, with any more clarity or as beautifully as E.B. White? Nobody can become the person they're writing about. So I thought, well, I'm just going to include these these uh, quotes as part of my story. I'll let him uh, have center stage, uh, punctuate the book with his, his essays. And that essays, letters, pieces of any of his work. And that turned out to be the best idea of all because it gave me, uh, it gave me a form, first of all. And a hierarchy. There would be my writing, and then where I could, I would punctuate my story in his own words. So that required writing, reading, basically everything I could get my hands on that he wrote, and reading it a number of times. And I'm not a very organized person, so I didn't have a fancy software or any way of addressing when I found something. I would be so excited. Uh, sometimes I would rip it out of a book and pack it to my wall. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I copied it. I had more than one copy of a lot of things because some books were just up for grabs. Like they were, they were part of my process and I needed to cut them up or pack them up. I needed. So, so there was that. So, so I found those quotes and, and set them aside. But then there, a design question came up for, for me early on, and that was how to address what they were going to look like. Are these poems going to be in a different font? Suddenly, um, as a text, it was getting very long, so I thought, well, I wanted to try typing them up on a manual typewriter, just like he did, Mm -hmm. for two reasons. One, I wanted to slow down enough to feel what it felt like to be in touch with his sentences word by word, so to type them up was the best way to do that, and then visually... It, they it distinguished them from my text. The another layer on that was that I thought they should be illustrated. So they became the illustrated quotes with a small label on each one identifying where that quote came from in the year. And that that clues the reader into going to find the full passage or full letter, et cetera, and the year it was written because it, it it's important to know that something I put in his childhood he didn't write in his childhood. And so then the book began to take shape with these various elements. The White family, Martha White, his granddaughter, is a a friend of mine, and she uh, opened up the archival floodgates to me. I mean, it was really really remarkable. I was able to see TV White sketchbook, home movies, uh, anything I needed, she was uh, she was right there uh, 
has already uh, provided it for me. So I had a lot of access to the manuscripts and photographs and letters and some things that had never been published. And one is a favorite one of mine from Catherine Angel, the uh, fiction editor at the New Yorker, wrote to him and she became, of course, Mrs. White and White wife. And I love that that letter was included, not just for um, the historical um, piece, but and, and and the New Yorker history, but because it was, it was the beginning of their relationship too. So that that kind of thing just doesn't happen every day. And it, I I I I felt like the whole thing was this whole book and my working on it was just charmed from the get go. So I I guess I I hope that answers your question. Yeah, I, it it was kind of magical. It really unfolded. That's but you but also it took time, and that is this wasn't a book I could rush. I had to wait and keep working to feel what was feeling right about it. And and I know that sounds kind of fuzzy, but there is a moment where you know you, you nail something, and you have to keep waiting for that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because as you were talking, I mean, the page that I had particularly um, flagged, one of them was just a a, a two-page spread of the trumpet of the swan and mm-hmm. and had thought – you know, how beautifully done it is because what you have is the cover of the book on one side, you have your text, and then you flow right into the um, typewriter type text and then the little tag below it of the date and the and the title. And, it, and it's just, you know, when you have a musical score, it, it's just as a, just in a design, like you can just sit there and look at it as a piece of art, the whole spread is just beautifully, beautifully done. And it's that kind of feeling throughout, I guess, what struck me in in what you were doing um, by flowing between these things is that really what you did was you made it feel seamless between what was, what was the book and sort of the pullouts of things plus what you were adding to it and your words and his, I, I just thought so much of it was, was beautifully, beautifully thought out. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because the design of most of, of books should feel seamless or we're paying too much attention to the design. The design allows us to uh, know where we are, in in a in a place in the book and uh, helps the book to flow. It makes it fun and interesting to get to the next page, etc. All those all those uh, seamless details are decisions made along the way. And uh, thanks for noticing. And uh, it, it is one of the really fun things about making a book. I find though is figuring that out. That it's there. Every book is really different that way. And you know, this solution for this book is nothing like the solution for the next book. But if you're, if the, if the person who you write, for instance, the biography, if the person and where they lived, the era, the um, the materials are all part of that, are all working together, and not. And I think I think what 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 I'm looking for is, am I trying to be clever? Or am I using this because I want to, or am I, or am I doing this because 
it's in service of the, the book and the design. So I have to be careful not to, I, I'm careful not to just make it fun for me. I want it, I want it, I really want it. And it is fun for me, mm-hmm. but I want it to be, I want to choose carefully. And, and I think we do as illustrators, I, those decisions we make are, are all pointing to uh, being a marriage with our tech. Which leads me to the question I had wanted to ask you too, which is how does your process work uh, between writing and illustrating? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's never been one way I've done it. This is my fourth book. And the difference between writing and illustrating my own work and illustrating someone else's is night and day. It's a very, it's just, even though I do a lot of research for any nonfiction book I'm doing, there's there's uh, something about doing both that it's, um, it, it, I think it has the ability to be more, even more seamless, even though we want it to be seamless no matter what. But my process is messy. It is messy because I don't, I get very excited about what I'm reading and I don't keep, keep good. Like I mentioned earlier, I don't keep good tabs on anything. I just, I just, I'm like, um, I'm so excited. I can hardly sometimes write it all down. Everything's by hand. I'm not jotting things down on the computer. The computer doesn't really even enter into it for me. It's all on paper, on vertical walls and horizontal surfaces. But that's part of the beauty of, there's some serendipity there too. So just like in making a collage piece, the nature of collage is you might see a piece of paper out of the corner of your eye. You're not you're not don't have necessarily everything you need right in front of you. So that's how I feel when I'm writing and illustrating. I begin writing. I'll do a little bit of artwork. With the artwork, I'll think I'll think I want to. I don't need to say this in the story because I can put it in the art, but describing how even an instant writer, how E.B. White uh, quotes came to be illustrated, you can sense that it's really by the seat of my pants. Part of it is uh, solving a problem for me, like how, how, is, how am I going to do this? So it works back and forth, but eventually the story has to be written and time needs to be set aside to do that. That doesn't mean I'm not collecting materials or thinking about how I'm going to illustrate. I knew in some writer early on I wanted to write about how E.B. White's three children's books came to be. And in that, in reading those books and listening to them on audio for a long, long time, about a year, it's just incessantly going, you know, reading them over and over and listening over and over. I came upon a passage from each one that I felt was exemplified each story, and I knew I wanted to do a collage around the, that passage, say from Stuart Little, because I didn't want any someone coming to some writer to have to try to remember the story of Stuart Little or that they met, that they had even read it before. I've met plenty of people who haven't read Stuart Little. And um, so it was, so those devices are uh, an opportunity to make a more, a more comprehensive book. And 
to be a gift, a little bit of a gift to the reader. Like we're not, I'm not expecting anybody to know anything starting from scratch. So that, that, that was an idea early on and then fleshed out when I got to that point in the book that I, I needed to think more about those, those large three-dimensional collages. Now, yeah. no, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish that. No, that's, yeah, it's just an example of it's, they don't, those sorts of things don't just appear. They, they're like started way back. It's like kind of an archaeological dig when you think about going back to how that began. It's funny because they seem like they were always meant to be, but not really. You have to kind of conjure up how you want it to look. Now, I wanted to, before we uh, close, there are a couple things I wanted to do. First, I um, wanted to mention uh, some of your more recent books, although I do want to touch back on one that I've always been fond of, um, your Balloons Over Broadway about the Macy's Parade, which is a very fun book, and one that we've talked about here um, because I had spoken with Michelle Markell about Brave Girl, uh, about mm-hmm. the shirtwaist uh, maker's strike, and then more recently, uh, you have a book called Firefly July and uh, You Nest Here With Me. And the one that I skipped in the middle but haven't forgotten is The Right Word, which is maybe a companion in some ways to this because it's about um, Roger and the thesaurus, which is kind of fun. Um, mm-hmm. But tell me what you're working on now. Right now, I am working on a book by Kwame Alexander, and it's, uh, it's, in a nutshell, it's a book-length poem, and my drafting table is covered with a white sheet of paper, and I'm just playing and mapping it out visually, so there's, there's, that's, it's, it's really, it's really the, it's kind of the polar opposite of some writer and the perfect next book. So it's pretty exciting, actually. Yeah. Um, I was going to say that people should definitely look for these. Um, Let me ask you before I, because you you gave me the uh, chance, is there anything else that you'd like to touch on before we go? In thoughts for... um, Maybe young people looking for books um, and and learning more about writing. Let me think for a second. I've bought so many books when the holidays come. I just read Moo by uh-huh. Sharon Creech, which I loved, mm-hmm. and I'm finding that there well, there are two two other books that I I really loved. Uh, and I don't know if they're about writing or about how interesting ways to tell a story. And I think that is, all that is about writing in a way. One is uh, Jesse Hartland did a book called Insanely Great about Steve Jobs. And I mm-hmm. love reading about Steve Jobs because he's in our life. Anybody who uses a Mac basically has Steve Jobs in his life. And I love her biography on him. And it was a wonderful way to uh, illustrate a biography. And the other book I loved was Lucy by Randy Cecil, which is a almost like a graphic novel. But what I'm noticing about books more recently is the production, the kind of paper they're using, 
and uh, the length they're they're a little bit longer than we're used to, and I love that too. But um, I one thing that happened for me this past fall in going to the school, it was this amazing program here in Maine, and 650 students that I saw all got a copy of Some Writer, <laughs> and they were all ages from kindergarten through high school. And I think the best case scenario was that all these kids went back and either heard Charlotte's Web again or read Charlotte's Web again, and it was an opportunity to reread Evie White or see him anew. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend that. I, I just recommend touching base with his three children's books again. And then the high school kids were reading some of his essays and looking at how sensory they were, how you could you you could feel yourself where he was, the smells of the woods, the sound of the water, uh, all those small details in his essay. And then they went on to do a hike and came back and wrote their own essays. So I feel like his work is as rich and ripe as it was the day he wrote it. And I, so I just urge kids to to, in a way, have fun dissecting someone's work and finding out what about it interests them and where, where, where is it memorable for them. So writing should be, have, should be fun. So I guess I will leave it at that. Okay. And what I'm going to, what I'm going to, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and what I'm, what I'm going to hope is that when people buy their baby gift books of Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little and, and all of that, that um, they'll buy some writer along with it because it's a book to grow up with and understand um, mm. E.B. White. And as you were saying, you know, I think both can go hand in hand through, um, through many different ages. So, um, yes. but thank, thank yeah, thank you so much for this. This is, um, a delight and, you know, truly, I hope people will, uh, take a look at the book and, uh, and also, uh, your other books. And let me also say, uh, they can find your work at melissasweet.net. Anything else they should know in terms of looking for you? No, I think you can find me there, and you can find me on Facebook, and you can write me a simple snail mail. That all works, so thank you. Thank That's you. Great. I love to hear from readers. Great. All right. Great. Well, thanks again, Melissa, th so much. Thank you, Susan. Okay. Take care. 